from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm continuing my fascinating conversation with Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. In part one, we talked about his 33 years of service in the U.S. Army. In this episode, his military career takes him to Washington, D.C., first to the Pentagon, then as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. In 2017, he served as national security advisor to President Donald Trump until he was embroiled in Russiagate. I'm pleased to welcome back my guest, General Michael Flynn. This is part two of our interview. Mike, you've had a long career in the professional military. And then you come to Washington, D.C. to work at the Pentagon under the Obama administration. Was that career change a shock or a big difference to you? Yes, it was a shock. And the differences were how the military was treated from the perspective of understanding what the purpose of our military actually is. And I always go back to, again, what I learned from my father. He told me one day when I was in the military, he goes, you know, the military is not a reflection of society anymore. And whereas I think in World War II, in his era, it was a reflection of society. Society really believed in serving the military. And if the military went to war, the nation went to war. And I just feel like it was sort of a thing to experiment with. And I think it may be unfair, but that's how I feel. And I think I feel that way more so today. 
So all that said, I ended up getting appointed by Barack Obama twice and then confirmed by the United States Senate twice. And I don't remember, you know, anybody saying, well, no, we don't want him. I mean, twice. So selected by the Department of Defense, nominated by the President of the United States to be Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Partner Engagement, where I was responsible really for outreach to the international community and to the domestic community, state, local, and tribal. So I had a real broad portfolio as the Assistant Director of National Intelligence in that role. That taught me a lot. And I spent about the better part of 10 to 12 months there. And then I moved over to the Defense Intelligence Agency, again, uh, appointed by Barack Obama. I'm one of these guys when I see something that's not right. I mean, when you were arguing about national intelligence estimates, for example, if we have a national intelligence estimate on nuclear weapons, if we have a national intelligence estimate on chemical biological weapons or on a piece of geography, like a national intelligence estimate on South Asia and India or sub-Saharan Africa, where the intelligence community at the national level does an estimate, and that estimate then drives policy. It drives economic criteria and conditions. It drives military relationships. It drives diplomatic relationships. It drives informational relationships. I had been deployed in many, many of these places. And I'm one of these studies of cultures and studies of our threats and adversaries, but also our competitors, because that would be my job if I was asked to go do something. I would know where to get their information. So I saw the Obama administration taking on things that I thought were detrimental to our country. They actually, I thought that they were going to hurt our country. I don't think we paid enough attention to the relationships that China, Russia, Brazil, and South Africa were having in terms of geostrategic positioning for global finance and also for geography. And geography matters. I think a lot of people don't know that China really owns the Panama Canal. We built it. They own it. And just one example of trade if you have to go from China to Europe and you have to cut over the Arctic Circle, well, that's about 15,000 kilometers, right? Well, if you can cut through the Panama Canal, that cuts about 7,000 kilometers off of your trade route. That matters a lot when you're talking about global trade and being able to move goods and services across the globe. And you can do it faster, right? Trade is really what is driving the world. Another area that really I became very interested, and part of it was because of my time in Afghanistan, was the global drug market and the cartels that are wealthier than nation states and the kinds of things that they were doing in South America, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the stands north of Afghanistan, Uzbekistan as an example. So there's huge drug producing countries. And then you have Southeast Asia, a drug producing region. And you have, obviously, the Iron Triangle, I call it, of South America, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. And then you have Mexico that's been involved in it for decades. But the Mexicans figured they could grow China white heroin in Mexico. Why the hell should we buy it from the Chinese? There's a drug market that operates within the global trade market. And that is a massive, massive threat to our country in ways that people don't understand. And I could tie it to everything from our healthcare system to our education system. So all the things that I'm talking about, I began to really see that we were moving in the wrong direction. And I stated that in different ways, but professionally, understanding my chain of command and leveraging my chain of command and 
the whole deal with Iran was a big deal. I thought it was a huge mistake. I mean, huge mistake. And I think what Donald Trump has done in the Middle East is extraordinary. In three years, he's figured out how to solve a three or four decade problem, probably longer than that. And Iran was an adversary and they are still an adversary. And I really felt, wow, this is really not a good thing, not a good step. And so again, in my military cap at the time, I let that be known as well. So I really saw trends that we were heading toward that I'm not going to sit in a room and not say something, right? The person that sits in the room and doesn't say anything, you know, why invite him into the room? Did you start to get real pushback from the Obama White House? Yeah, it was really questioning, you know, why was I arguing about some national intelligence estimate to bring it back to that part of the conversation? And also in a public hearing, the global threat briefing that Intel community gives, which is a public threat briefing to the American public. Everybody else at the table said, Al-Qaeda is on the run. And I was like, well, they're not really on the run. They're still growing and they're growing exponentially. That was sort of the straw, I think, where there was then, I'm certain, some backroom meeting. And they said, this guy, he's not one of our guys. And that's why I was always surprised (laughs) because the guy that you're talking to knew hasn't changed since I was a captain of my football team in high school. I and mean, I'm the same guy. I always sort of talk straight. And so how I got to where I got twice by Barack Obama, I think solely because I had done the things that I had done. And I really did know what was you know, happening. I had a great fingertip feel for operational environments and how we could connect them to our strategic conditions that we needed to set for our country. And I felt that way had great relationships with senators and members of the House at the time. It's really where I met people like Devin Nunez, who's been a real warrior for our country. We established a great relationship, and I still have that relationship today. I actually had a great relationship with Senator McCain. I'm probably one of the only general officers that called him grumpy one day because he was grumpy when I was invited over to his office to talk to him. And he had a great advisor that worked with him, who was a former military guy who I knew. And we had a great conversation with Senator McCain. May you rest in peace. And people can say what they say, but I think he was a person who served this country in an extraordinary way. But I had a good relationship with him and I could talk to him straight. And I felt like he would talk to me straight. And so those relationships mattered to me. They knew that there was tension, not for me, but there was tension between what we felt we needed to do to move our America first sort of priorities. And I'll use that phrase versus where the direction that the Obama administration was taking us, I think that led me to where, frankly, where I'm at today. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Talk to me about sort of the direct path between crossing them in the sense that I think they expected everybody to be obedient and do what they're told. And when you end up then being for Trump, they become stunningly vindictive. It's amazing to me, given your background, Mm -hmm. how they could have targeted you. I mean, to what extent do you think that was just in part just a grudge fight from the past? I don't know if you remember a phone call we had probably in 2016 timeframe early We were connected on a phone call. And I think that this is important because at the time, I just knew what I felt about Donald Trump. He's the guy that I met in the summer of 2015 and then really got to know him. At the time, I was out campaigning for Donald Trump. And I used to introduce Donald Trump to thousands and thousands of people as the most imperfect guy who's going to be the next president of the United States. (laughs) You know, and people would go nuts. They would cheer that because the American public they don't want perfection. They want leadership. And they know that leaders are imperfect. And that's what I saw in Donald Trump. And because he and I connected and rode on the campaign battlefield together, I knew a lot about what was happening. And I was witnessing a change in the direction of our country. That's where I was coming from. Not that Barack Obama bad, you know, Hillary Clinton bad, these are evil people. I witnessed a change in our country. And I had a lot of conversations with Donald Trump about that. I was championing for him. And I think because when they began to realize that my role may have been helping him, and I believe it did in that 2016 campaign, when they saw that, that's when they said, we cannot allow this guy who thinks he's all that do this. I mean, they inserted a spy into the early days of the post convention, but a spy to spy on me and him. And that's all public now. So I think that I became a threat. I became a threat because of a variety of reasons. One was because Donald Trump, and if you looked at the numbers, the numbers that people were looking at, they probably were saying, geez, this guy, Donald Trump, has a shot, even though the media and Democrats would say, no, he doesn't have a shot. The polls are this. Actually, we were seeing that Donald Trump had a shot for a long time, a real shot, as long as he left it all out on the field and showed the American people that he was for them. 
I presented a threat in that regard. I think the other threat that I presented was I knew a lot about some of the policy direction and certainly the intelligence community and certainly the Department of Defense that, that I could advise the president on. So all of a sudden, Trump wins after he appointed his chief of staff. I'm one of the like, first two people that he appoints onto his new team in a formal way. I'm now the national security advisor. When that happened, I guarantee that in some back room in Washington, D.C., a group of people said, there's no way in the world that we're going to allow this guy to have that role because he could understand what's happening. And so I won't get into the details of that, Newt, because there's more to come on that. I remember seeing you during the transition up to Trump Tower. And right. what you were putting together, looking at the whole national security system of the country. And I think at the time, I mean, I couldn't imagine how much pain you would go through and how vicious the attack would be. It was really almost unimaginable. Yeah. The environment was hostile. It was not collegial for uh, transition for the United States of America. And I studied our National Security Council all the way back to National Security Act of 49. So I studied the different presidencies and the national security system or structure that they had around them. And of course, you have cabinet secretaries and other key departments and stuff like that. But the immediate team of people that you have to answer a problem. And I looked at our National Security Council at that time, and it was like 400 people. Essentially, it was a government within a government. Very dangerous for the United States of America, in my judgment. And my ultimate goal in about six months would be to neck that down to probably around 75, maybe down as low as 50. At the height of the Soviet Union under Ronald Reagan, the National Security Council that existed around him, it was like 45 people, maybe 50 people that lived and breathed on a daily basis. That was restructuring that must happen. It still needs to happen. Because what you then have is you bring in the best talent that the country can have. You surround them in a small team way, trusted, loyal, and understand the direction that the president of the United States is going to go. And then when you need expertise, form a team of experts, solve this problem, come back to us in, a, in 30 days and give us what you recommend as a policy action. Literally, the first National Security Council meeting that I went into it, I look around the room, and there was like 30, 40 people in the room. I walked into the room just to say, make some opening remarks. Where's the Department of Defense? And there was somebody that was there from the Department of Defense. There was somebody there from the Department of State. But most of the people worked for the National Security Council. Why do we have all these people over here? You need to be where you can be most effective. And when we need you, we will bring you in. I want the best that the country can provide for the president of the United States in a small shot group of a team, 45 to 50 people. I mean, remember, at the height of the Cold War, that was about the size of the National Security Council. We had 500,000 troops at that time in Europe alone. Why were we able to do that and achieve what we could achieve for a president like Ronald Reagan? But I'm stepping into a mired swamp of 400 people, and I'm wondering, where are their loyalties? Who do they actually work for? Why are you assigned here? And I didn't want to ask those questions. I just wanted to say, thank you for your service. You are a detailee from CIA or a detailee from State Department. You can return to your home agency, and thank you. We have to shape our national security apparatus. That was job number one, because the rest of it then is the reform in terms of organizationally and financially, and the budgets, if you will, have to be examined. What you just described 
is typical, I think, of why the reaction to both you and Trump was so extraordinary. I mean, you're taking an institution in which the 350 people he would get rid of all see that as a center of their career, a center of their power, and you're now a mortal threat to them. I'm one of these type of people that thinks out loud like I'm doing right now. So I think out loud because why? I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to make people wonder what am I thinking in terms of the kinds of things and reforms and ways that we must move. We must do this. We have to move our country in a direction that it's not necessarily going to solve the problem, but it's going to manage the problem in a much better way for an individual who's the president of the United States who has extraordinary decisions to make on a daily basis. And what you need is you need to have a level of trust, you need to have a level of expertise, and you need to have them available now. I learned when I went to Washington, D.C., versus being in the military, right? When you're in the military organization, you tell the ship to turn right or you tell the army formation to move left. They do it. They move and they don't question it because they know the planning process that went behind that. When you start to deal with the bureaucracy, they question it. And instead of moving in the direction that you want them to move, like a presidential policy or a presidential directive, they come back to you with white papers and studies from think tanks to tell you why you shouldn't do it. And all of a sudden you wake up and as the president or the national security advisor and you go, geez, I thought we were already doing that. The president signed that order six months ago and you find, no, they're still thinking about doing it. They're, still, they're actually still thinking about whether or not they're gonna support it. We can't function like that. So where it has to start though, I think, is there has to be an example of that type of reform at the White House level and in the National Security Council I actually think that President Trump, what he did with the National Economic Council, which is akin to the National Security Council in the White House, how he formed that himself is why he's achieved incredible successes that he achieved for our economy. I wish to God that they had said after he won, okay, let's give him a shot, see what he can do and allow him to do it. Because I actually think that our economy would be double where it is today, maybe even more. He's that much of a master. That's what he did. He took the National Economic Council in his own hands and he drove it personally. You got different advisors in there, good, sharp advisors over time that he's had versus the other side, the aisle, which is sort of the U.S. foreign policy stuff that the National Security Council allows itself to sort of look at and examine. The reform has got to start at the top. That sets the stage and it gives an example for the rest of the government. I'll tell you, the Department of the Treasury and Department of Commerce, Trump has leveraged those two finer than any other president that I've studied. And I've studied, I think, all of our presidents dating back to George Washington. He's been a master at it. I think he struggled in the state and and the Defense Department, although with Mike Pompeo over there, I think that's been a good, positive leader over there to kind of shape it a bit. But the State Department and the Defense Department, they absolutely need to be reformed in ways that make them more focused on what their true responsibility is. Former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates once said that the Pentagon plans for wars, they don't fight wars, and he says and they don't plan wars very well. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Given how bold you were and how bold Trump was, the scale at which I think people are on the left and in the professional bureaucracy Mm -hmm. in a state of shock, to what extent do you think they went after you personally because you were a direct threat. And to what extent do you think they were going after you as a way of getting at Trump? Well, we know now from exculpatory evidence that it was an effort to get Flynn to get Trump. That's a public filing in my case that we fought tooth and nail for fighting my own government to prove that I got the raw end of the stick here. If I was to say something about our president that I think is different, I actually think that once the election was over in 2016, I actually think that the president felt like, hey, I won. This is great. And that's the political process. There was great turnout for President Trump. The country came to his aid and said, we want something different. We're tired of the political class. But it was a war. As you know. So he gets elected. He's the winner. He's now starting to get all the phone calls from around the world. And he's starting to you know, think about, OK, wow, I won. It's sinking in. I do think that there was probably a moment where he felt like now that he's won, you know, everybody's going to say, great job, Donald. We're going to be right there with you. There's going to be tension between the Democrats and the Republicans like there always has been. But we are in a different era. Newt. We are moving towards something as Barack Obama said, something fundamentally different. And so when he won, there wasn't a decision to say, we're going to give you a shot, right? We're going to give you a shot at being president. That lasted about five minutes. 
But I think for a period of time, I believe he felt that. It was euphoric for him. I know how I felt. So, and his family was right there with him too. And then the machine started and the machine kicked into high gear. And you know, everybody knows the kinds of things that happened right after the election, where there was press conferences and statements from the other camp that said, we're going to resist. And it probably started then. But for you personally now, you're in the White House, you are the National Security Advisor. When did you begin to realize that this was really serious and not just something you could shrug off? I realized it prior. I realized it really in a deep way during the transition. I, because it was sort of a hostile environment, it wasn't a great job. We want to make sure we turn over things to you so the country is able to continue to function and operate in an environment globally where there are threats, as you know. And I knew it. I mean, I knew some of these people, knew most of them, the types of people that they were. But anyway, I felt that then. And then, of course, going into the White House, you want to believe what's best in people. And you're working with different organizations, agencies, which I had been doing for the second half of my career. And you want to trust the senior officials in our government. You want to trust them that they're not out to ruin the country. As I look back and try to answer your question in a sort of a roundabout way, because I'm not a vindictive person. I always say, Newt, if there's anything I'll do, I'll live all the bastards. But when senior government officials in our government usurp not only an individual, particularly an individual like me in a really, really important job, but usurp the presidency and the country, our constitution, that's very, very dangerous. And that's what happened. It was a means to an end. And that means to an end, we are still living today in this disastrous election that we are going through. There's this whole new strategy of criminalizing behavior Mm -hmm. and not trying to defeat people, but trying to destroy them. It seems to me that you got caught up at a transition moment where there were no rules except to get you. And in fact, we now know because of your courage in refusing to give in and your willingness to keep fighting, that people were literally explicitly breaking the law to try to go after you and to try to frame you. Right. Wouldn't that have struck you as inconceivable back when you were in uniform? Absolutely. I mean, 110%. And that's what happened. Through my fight, what we were able to expose is really the nonsense of the entire Mueller investigation. One specific example is the interview of one of the senior FBI agents, who was a very seasoned guy. He was in the midst of it during 2016. He was in the middle of it in the early in the transition. He was part of the Mueller team. And he came forward. His statement, his five or six page statement, which is an extraordinary, it essentially says in a very specific way, what you just described to criminally go after opponents in politics and criminalize anything you can do and destroy them instead of fighting them in an American political way. And that's what the left does, Newt. That's what the left does. I will tell you this, because over the last four years that I've been dealing with this, people would come to me and they would say, hey, Mike, geez, we're so sorry. What happened to you? And I look at them and I say, don't feel sorry for me because I don't feel sorry for myself. 
I feel sorry for the country because the country was disadvantaged by not having me allowed to be President Donald J. Trump's national security advisor. I was not allowed to do that. And what happened was the previous administration did something so devious to the incoming administration, and we have witnessed it in spades, and they're not hiding it anymore. They don't hide it. On the battlefield, I would always say to our teams, we would get intelligence where the enemy was telling you things. They were saying how they were going to operate, or they would publish things in the military doctrine. Read the damn stuff. Read what they're telling us they are going to do, how they are going to operate, and watch their behavior. Because if they tell you they're going to do something, you definitely got to be prepared and plan for it. Well, the left is now in our country, they're telling us what they're going to do to the country. And so I think that that's something that we just all have to be aware of. That to me is unimaginable in our country that they would have targeted me to destroy me. The attacks that I and my family experienced from the media, (laughs) you know, like my mother used to say when we would come home from a fist fight or something at school, she would say, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. So, you know, go back outside. That's sort of my mentality in a funny way. I don't worry about what the haters do because haters hate. And I know who I am. I have my faith. I have an incredible family and an extended family and a large Irish family. And my wife is Portuguese. My wife and I, we've been together since we were 13. So thank God, because she's been just a rock with me through this. And through my career, too. And we have just an extraordinary family. And then I have what I call true friends, true friends. Many have been with me from the beginning as a child who I still stay in touch with. And I mentioned early on in the conversation about our non-commissioned officers, the number of sergeants, majors, first sergeants, all, all platoon sergeants who know me personally and live with me, breathe with me, fought with me. They know that's not Mike, that's what's being described. So they'd say, hey, Flynn, let me know what you want me to do. You know, I mean, we're here with you. I mean, even to the point of someone reaching out to me this morning just to ask how I'm doing, an old Sergeant Major friend of mine who lives down in Fort Benning, Georgia. Those types of people stuck with me, and I cherish those true friendships and these tough moments in life where you're up against the wall. Like the Afghans I described as resilient. I have a resilient fiber in my body, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, that has allowed me to withstand these body blows that I have taken and put me where I'm at right now, talking to you and feeling like I've survived something that no American should ever, ever have to go through again, as long as we can keep the constitutional republic that we have. How the American people helped you Well, you've had to deal with all the legal battles. During this entire period, Newt, you know, we were struggling financially. It's one of the reasons I probably got caught up in having to make the decisions I made. You know, I'm a soldier and I come from a lower middle class family, not looking for people to feel sorry for me. So my family and I, we started to reach out to America and we did it through radio to say, hey, my brother needs some help. And we asked America to help me. And America came through in spades for me. I never had to put a tin cup out. And that speaks volumes for the American people's instincts about what is right and what is wrong. Tell me about the letters you have received from people writing to you through your legal defense fund. 
so what happened was my sister Barbara, we created a legal defense fund. And through that legal defense fund, I mean, thousands and thousands of letters came in to me. And so I sat and wrote letters back to all those people, every one of them. The letters that I get, that I have received from the American people is a book in itself because the letters will bring a reader to tears. I have envelopes with sticky notes, five or six sticky notes stuck together that they wanted to write me a letter. And I guess that's all they had. I have beautifully typed written letters of pouring their emotions out about what they feel about the country. When I first got the first set of letters, I was reading and I said, I've got, I can't just put these in a box. I got to do something with them. So I started writing letters back and I've been doing that for four years. Those letters, they represent people from every single state. It's extraordinary. It is one of the major reasons why I was able to get through this because people around the country reached out to me and said, we believe in you. Thank you for serving the country, both on the military battlefield and in the bureaucratic and political battlefields. You have shown enormous courage and persistence. I appreciate that, Newt. I've always believed that you see right from wrong. And thanks for allowing me the opportunity to tell part of the story. Even while we were developing these interviews, Judge Sullivan finally, after all this time, released General Flynn from a case which I believe should never have been brought. And I think it's sad that Judge Sullivan could have done this at any point, but deliberately waited until after the president's pardon. In either case, we now know that General Flynn should never have been charged, that the case had no merit, and that General Flynn can now go back to serving the American people. Thank you to my guest, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. You can read more about his life on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hold up. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.